On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Count Spankula, or some call him Spankula the Count, and maybe he'll tell us his real name. I don't know, but he was just the subject of an intensive documentary called, and I love this name, Spanky Was a Punk Rocker, and it explores his time with the band Dead Vampires and his creative passions before, during, and after, which includes collecting horror memorabilia, going to horror conventions, and gluing lots of rhinestones on men's sport coats. So welcome to the show, Spanky. Oh, thank you. So how would you like to be addressed? You know, what do you like people to call you? I just go by Spanky. And Count Spankula, that's more like when you're in the band, your your drummer name? Yeah, and Spankula, the Count, is my email. So, so it just sounds fancy, Spankula, the Count. Well, this episode's going to be different because obviously, you know, I, I know you better than most of my guests. And I did spend about five years making a documentary of you, so full disclosure... But in a nutshell, just explain what this documentary is and why you let someone get so nosy with your life for five years. Well, really, I've always wanted something that could share some piece of me, but really it kind of comes to being a getting a piece of you out there before you're dead and gone and leaving at least one thing behind. And so the one thing you can leave behind is an hour long segment on stuff you've done. So I think it's fascinating all the things that we get to do in life and there's so much more to be done, but what has been done is a lot. And it's fun to share. And I don't find myself to be a person who puts myself on video all the time and is annoying all over the internet. So it's just one hour of it. It's just one piece. It's finally happened. And I think a lot of times we think, oh, if someone's going to be in a documentary, you know, they have to be Julia Roberts or Albert Einstein, you know, these mega you know, popular household names. And yet technology now lets us give the, the stories and, you know, make documentaries of people at all different levels. And, you know, and you're no slouch. You're in this really cool horror punk band in Seattle, I think starting around the mid 2000s. And you, you know, you guys made a name for yourself. You put out records, you did shows. And, you know, for me, what I got out of doing this was just to be reminded. Most artists won't have people coming up to them and say, hey, I, I want to do a documentary of you. If you've created something, you know, you have to preserve that yourself, your legacy and your history. And I just want to know your thoughts. You know, you obviously had wanted to preserve your artistic legacy, but no one had really come, you know, banging on your door, you know, demanding to do it. So I'm just wondering if I didn't ask you, do you think you ever would have, you know, made a documentary of yourself? I 
think I would have tried and failed, but I always have all this stuff in my surroundings of many shows. So no matter what, if it's not, if it's documenting me or the band or whatever, then that is something I couldn't have done on my own. I just have all the pieces and I always need somebody to help me put together the pieces. You did that. You helped put this puzzle all together. And, you know, there's about 50 shows that are almost an hour long each that I have put on video. So if that was a part of the film, you know. Well, a big part was your concert footage. And I know a woman named Julie Wickstrom, you know, would go to your concerts and take amazing footage, which was invaluable. So you right. know, I, I give and... her so much credit. And just for, you know, 15 years later, you're the one to keep those. I mean, what are they? High eight tapes. And just to catalog that, I know a lot of people, you know, 15, 20 years ago, those tapes might be lost or, you know, they recorded over them. So it is like this, this village it takes to preserve stuff, whether it's, the friend or the girlfriend or the boyfriend of someone in the band coming to the shows because the band can't do it while they're performing. So it's always the support people who are taking photos and video and somehow preserving your performances. Right. And where, where I would say so. <laughs> that damn phone continue, please. Oh, you have to beg these people to do this. You have to beg them to come. You have to beg somebody to hold the camera because I would buy cameras. Julie would buy cameras. We were trying to keep up with cameras, but Julie wanted to stay with photography as well. And as I watched all these recordings, the majority of these later shows were done by Coco, which was Zach's and still is Zach's um, wife for the entire time the dead vampires has been a, a weird little love story but uh she held the video camera and then julie was taking all the photos and that's why we have a mix of both of those at all these shows and then you know julie could do video and camera and take stills from all that so both of them the ladies of dead vampires well, what we're going to do is really get into the making of this documentary and then what it kind of spurred in you and kind of the aftermath. And then we're going to just talk about, you know, where you're at today. And, you know, we've had lots of talks about just what do we do as creative people when we don't have a project to work on? And, you know, what have we lost interest in? What are we interested in now? You know, your creative journey is very interesting. And some of it's sweet and fun, some of it's angry, which I would hope so, since you're in a, a punk band, as you know, wearing a vampire mask. But I also, um, you know, want to wrap it up with, you know, just talking a little bit about, you know, attempting a creative life in this day and age, and you know, the risks you take. You know, everyone wants to be in a band. Everyone wants to make a movie. You know, everyone wants to do something cool. But it's always fun to talk about the reality of it. And especially, you know, when you're not 19 anymore, you know, going 
approaching middle age and, you know, what do you do with all this experience at this point in your life? So we're going to tackle a lot, Spanky. Okay. <laughs> and you sound very enthusiastic. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, bring it. Bring it. Oh, my God. Wasn't that the name of a cheerleader movie? <laughs> Which is yeah. I kind of which in another life I would I would picture you like um, writing and directing you know one of those vicious rival cheerleader movies where the Whoa. the two cheerleading squads you know go to a competition and they're real bitchy to each other. Yeah, Savage Streets meets Pandemonium. Exactly meets <laughs> meets the Disney Channel. No, not at all. <laughs> not if we have anything to do with it. You would write the hard-hitting Savage Streets inspired, then after it goes through all this studio involvement, it'll be like the next high school musical on Disney. Anyway, we're getting ahead Keep of ourselves. <laughs> so, in a nutshell, you've told your story many times. In the end, everyone's going to have to watch the documentary to fully know, but... Give me the rundown of how you first got the idea for Dead Vampires, you know, what you were doing in your life when you thought, I want to start a band. And then once you did, the people you attracted and what it kind of morphed into when it became the full, you know, Dead Vampires with singing and gigs and traveling, you know, take us through those crucial years. Okay, so it really started by this lust for monster horror TV hosts. And so MySpace was happening, and there was these visions of all these horror hosts who were just here and there and everywhere. And pictures, I think the internet just started exploding with visions and so I really wanted to recreate a horror show. And so I got help painting sets. I got help bringing huge pieces of junk home so I could paint them. And I basically started building a castle in the kitchen. And I was creating a backdrop more than anything. And then um, I needed to play music too there was going to be a monster band but i didn't know how to get a monster band but was i going to have to be every single piece of this horror show was basically the first thought i had about dead vampires and then i knew of a couple people that could be in this who could help and who the female would be and all that kind of stuff eventually as things would come together but it was taking a really long time to come together so by the time we got a drum set from like a $35 sale at a guy at work, um, I brought this thing home and had to build it piece by piece. And I was just told to keep on banging on it from my friend Matt. And so I kept practicing and then uh matt was eventually next to me and we were able to work together and he was able to show me how to move somewhat on these drums it was very caveman and so we even got called like we had a caveman stomp and it was very bat cave sounding so bat cave and 
caveman. So it was a cool sound that I was starting to get for for a monster show if this monster show was to ever happen. But I kept on collecting pieces and Halloween gear and more and more costumes. And basically, I turned into a shopaholic that couldn't stop finding things for this dream show. So while I'm shopping for all these things, I'm still practicing with my friend, Matt. And uh, we wanted to cover so certain songs. We wanted to cover a lot of Ramon songs and Kiss songs. And uh, a Circle Jerk song called Casualty Vampires, which was way too hard for me to play. But I kept practicing it, and uh, I liked it so much I wanted to call us the Casualty Vampires. And shortly after that, we just kind of just started to think about what a Casualty Vampire is. And it's somebody who loves to watch an accident on the side of the road and see the blood and guts and gore. I mean, we like it fake, and we didn't want to be real, so... Casualty Vampires started fading away as a name that it was like, I didn't want to be a Faces of Death, Traces of Death kind of band. We wanted to dive way more into a Pee-wee's Big Adventure kind of feel. So it went into the Return of the Living Dead kind of feel, and it turned into Dead Vampires just being like another Living Dead kind of thing. And we would be by the Dead Milkmen and the Dead Kennedys and the Record Pile and whatever, you know, all of a sudden we had a cool name. So all this stuff that we were, re we were playing at my house, I was recording. And so I started to make all of our music into CDs. And so every time, um, I would talk to people about this band, dead vampires, I'd have music to prove that I had this band and, Sure enough, there was this demand that it sh should be playing live. And when that was presented to me, I was a little nervous, but I went and did it. And it had to be costume band. It had to look like this monster band that was supposed to be in my TV show. But, you know, if I'm going to play in a punk bar, I can't have my TV show, too. So we're just going to go be that little monster band and do whatever we can to be funny and memorable and and try to get better. So we did. We went and we played and it was a success. And I feel like uh, Zach and Doc were there e either the first show or the second show. And they had witnessed us. And basically, you know, I didn't have the biggest group of friends in rock and roll so like when they like came up to me and were wanting to be like rock and roll friends and perhaps play with us it was of course yeah so i brought them in really quickly like uh zach came and played with us really fast and we were playing and sounding like the monsters all of a sudden our music was shifting into like a cool monsters vibe that could play kiss music and ramones and misfits and then uh you know i hear about doc who was also at a show at the same show so i get questioned if 
we should bring him in to sing because he saw us and liked us too. So yeah, bring Doc over. And so the next thing you know, we're like a five-piece band. So that was the assembly of Dead Vampires. And after that, you know, like, you learn your guitar parts. You'll know them when you when you make it, and you do the keyboards, you do the theremin, and and make up whatever, sing whatever. But I just wanted it to stay funny, and that was basically my main goal. It was be a costume band, be funny, and and it just turned into what it was. <laughs> Go, Kelly. Well, when you say, you know, you're making this castle in your kitchen and doing all this stuff, my first thought was, even before you thought this was going to be a band, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the club kids scene. Did you at first think maybe you just be put on parties and clubs and like be this happening? Mm. I should have been more open-minded to having more house parties, actually. I was like, I needed it to be something more and that's why it never got finished. But if it was just a house party and people always came over, oh my God. Well, did you throw any house parties? No, no, not really. It would have been awesome that way to be a club kid house party punk version of a monster club. It was going there, but you know, it was just a practice space, but you know, I could have like thrown monster parties with the cool paintings we painted stone walls and a whole bunch of wallpaper pieces for it and had big pieces of foam core and a doorway and did you use that when you finally you know went to um clubs and played with the band did they ever let you incorporate all this i took as much as we could but not everything got to go because we needed bigger vehicles and yeah, I mean, at the first, at the start of this, I took as much as possible and I made everybody take as much as possible. So we filled our cars trying to make a very kiss looking haunted house, fun house stage. Well, because at a lot of clubs, especially punk rock nightclubs, the stages can be tiny. So I can just imagine you showing up for a gig you know, at this scrappy club with a tiny stage and you're unloading the van and it's like you're setting up for Miss Saigon. And they're thinking, what the hell are these people doing? This is, mm. this is a tiny punk rock stage and this guy wants to put on Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, well, I wasn't afraid to cram it in there. I've seen Guar do it, so I knew it was possible. You know, nobody was really supposed to be on your stage with you, but you could cram as much stuff on there as you could. Definitely lights and monsters. It just went anywhere. Yeah. Filled the holes. So how quickly did v Dead Vampires take off? Because I know it started out with you, and then basically your boyfriend at the time, Chainsaw, who played Theremin, and you guys were more of... I don't know, I wouldn't say erasure, but more of a, a non-vocal duo that eventually became, you know, a little more of a rockabilly punk band. So what was the evolution of that? 
Well, when you're playing with a keyboard player, you're just trying to have some kind of beat that's not too loud, that's just going to blow them away, and you can't hear what the keyboard's doing. So the keyboardist was mainly singing. It was being like a robot, kind of the Sgt. Pepper scene where the robots are singing. That is what the keyboard was to me. So the keyboard talked, and the keyboard actually named the majority of those songs by going through my brain and out my hand on a piece of paper to write down these hilarious song titles and uh it's all because while i would be sitting there playing and listening to matt play the keyboard this hilarious uh sentence would come through my head it really sounded like that's what the keyboard was saying so i could hear a robotic language through it and that's why i named so many songs and that's why we recorded so many songs was because every time we jammed, we had something cool to record. Like we, we always sounded good. And I would have to prove that by putting together like an anthology collection of all of these demos that I have. And it's something that I think I should work on soon to get. So, so he was doing keyboard and you were doing drums and you guys were recording this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I have tons of tapes of that. Were you even calling yourselves dead vampires when you recorded that? Or was that kind of like an earlier incarnation of the band? We were dead vampires. The only time we changed the name from dead vampires to Moog Fits, M-O-O-G. We changed it to Moog Fits because... We were going to meet Jerry only, and we knew it. And when we took our cover CD of Misfits and Ramones, this was a really cool time for the Misfits, actually. The Misfits had joined up with Marky Ramone on drums, and they were doing half a Misfits set and half a Ramones set. So we made a CD that was half Misfits and half Ramones. They were all electronic. And they're some of the coolest songs we've ever done. But we didn't want to keep all the cover songs like that as something. We we didn't want to move into that direction for our next CD. So we were going to give away all the cover songs we knew to the real band that inspired us so much. So we took the CD and I found Jerry only after the show. And he was walking right towards me. And he was in spandex. He looked like total muscle man. And I stopped him with my hand and I put my hand on his chest and I said, wait, Jerry, I have to give you something. And I handed him a CD that said Moog fits and we made a different cover for it. And I said, it's just like a Halloween, like Christmas card. So, you know, I just wanted to give it to you as something cool for your collection or whatever. I just didn't, I I feel the impact of people getting angry that you cover their music and what are you doing with it kind of vibe. So basically I wanted to put it in his hands and not get in trouble for it, but I wanted him to hear what your fan club is doing. This is what your fans sound like. And I'm sure he loved it. And later on, um, an instrumental Misfits 
CD came out. And I feel, you know, if we inspired something like that, then that's really cool. But it needed to happen. We knew it. And so we did it. So after you and Matt kind of had this established, at what point did Chainsaw join you? He was there amongst all the practices. Um, when it came to like doing certain songs, we would decide if we were going to like have him in it or not, or if he wanted to practice more or whatever, just to be in it. Or if it was just going to be like a total noise song, like what were we doing? So I didn't want to have control of him and I didn't also want to like sound terrible either, but it became a big, big mix. Like it was pretty loud and swirly and, what he does is very noisy, so if you're trying to cover a Kiss song like Strutter and, you know, think about where the theremin goes and, like, try to, like, follow along with us to, like, cruise us through this song, Mr. Theremin. So he was always there to make certain things happen throughout our songs. If he wasn't, then he wasn't. But he was around the entire time. I mean, we tried to practice as much as possible. What's it like to form a band with someone that you're in a relationship with? I think it's hard because, you know, if people don't even know about their control issues and stuff, you know, don't attempt it. I think you should have bands with people that you're going to have a lot of fun with for sure. Um, don't get into something that if you're already complaining about stupid shit, then don't get together and get into a band and complain there too. I don't know. Like don't be in a stupid relationship. But it worked out well for you because you and Chainsaw seemed to be on the same page artistically. Like you guys were really into you know, you dressed up as a vampire. He was the bunny. It seems like you embraced that part of it together. Yeah. So Chainsaw put me to a challenge, and that was to let him do what he was ever going to do. And it was a very liberating time to for a relationship to just have them be like such a wild um amazing center of attention crazy like sex figure really in your band like i mean how many people take their relationship out and their partner basically is like a leatherman stripper for the night like and you're gonna be totally okay with that i don't know it to me it takes a a gay relationship and a and uh the older you get and the more you work on those relationships and the wilder your relationship can be while you're out is pretty amazing. And I wish people could learn more from it, but I don't think they can. I don't think they can. But um, to be in a relationship with somebody who goes out and expresses themselves so wildly like that, but doesn't even do that in their like date day life it's just kind of like a stage presence you get um well that'd be hard to sustain at home 24 7 
It, yeah, yeah. You wonder, like, if you're watching dead vampires from a distance and you're thinking, that man must be this and that at home. Well, you know, only certain people know, but it's a wild life when you when your partner goes and does that and and a crowd it's it's cool i mean i felt i felt an impact of like lust from another guy out there and i feel like if those are challenging times for your mental state then have fun with that see how that works out for you you know i knew a little bit that chainsaw had done DJ work down in San Francisco, but it really wasn't until recently I realized the full extent of that, that before he met you, you know, he DJed at some really cool clubs and helped organize, you know, his own special party nights, you know, and I'm trying to think of what you would call that, you know, when you, one night a month or one night a week, you know, you create the atmosphere at the club very much you know, like the club kid scene. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like, um, you know, with all that experience he had, I'm just curious, how much of that did he bring to the band? And did he share that with you? Say, hey, when I was doing my shows down in San Francisco, this is how we did it. Did he help incorporate some of that into Dead Vampires? That is exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> but I said it so much better, didn't I? You did. And that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, it, I don't need to allow somebody or trust somebody. Oh, just do your thing. And I hope you impress me. You know, like none of that shit. But he brought his San Francisco, everything he did and partied with and was like, oh, don't worry. I'll have fun tonight. And he did. And that's really amazing and and i'm glad when you can be with somebody in a relationship and they can just go show you like this is how i party well do you think in some ways he was less nervous than you meaning you know he had a certain amount of experience you know even even you know a club kid style you know party you're kind of on stage, or if you're in that DJ booth, you know, you're performing. Do you think he brought a lot of that? And was that something that you learned from? Yeah, yeah, I learned from it for sure. Um, he, yes, wild people are an inspiration. If you haven't figured out how to cut loose, then hopefully somebody will show you at some point because you are dull if you can't. So, you know, we have a a whole generation now that's being brought up on RuPaul's Drag Race and the Internet and seeing a lot of, you know, outrageous things out there. And it's a lot safer environment to do that in. But even 15 years ago, I mean, it was different out there and it was a lot more bold for you and your lover who had this, you know, club kids sort of you know background putting on these great extravaganzas in gay clubs but to bring that into a mostly straight punk rock atmosphere that's what was so different about what you were doing with dead vampires yeah i would say in the doc direction of that's all of us did like Marilyn Manson for sure. So any of this would have fallen into a Marilyn Manson zone of 
anybody who was there who wanted some shock value or whatever and got it from Chainsaw, I think that's what that is. I mean, they. I don't think anybody saw anything other than, you know, that's what they want. They want that like they want something out of an Alice Cooper show, too. So Chainsaw was there to give it to you. On the flip side, too, is I think in the gay community, it's like there's there's some rigid parameters. And I think they're they're lessening, but it's like, oh, you know, oh, you know, you want to go to a gay club. It has to be this kind of dance music or, oh, you have to worship divas or, oh, you got to love drag shows. And obviously gay people have much wider interests but it's almost like, you know, especially back then or back in the 80s and 90s, it was harder to say, oh, I'm gay. But boy, I wish they would play more Sisters of Mercy, you know. Oh, I got to go to just, you know, the goth club for that. You know, even within the gay world, it's like, you know, meeting people. For you especially, you know, when you're sharing your interests with people and the bands you like, you know, what responses did you get from the mainstream gay community when you tried to go out into it and say, I love Kiss and I like the Misfits and I love punk rock. And you know what I mean? What was the response you got trying to express who you were? I feel it took a really long time to find people that like music, anything like that I was interested in or anything that I could dig up. So if I grew up really loving New Wave and Kiss and just that whole 80s thing and getting right into like metal metal madness right away and you know twisted sister and wasp then i shifted in the punk and it all happened by the time i was like 15 and 16 like the all of this music had fallen into place and then you know goth and th other sub genres start trickling in but i did them all and i saw how they all went together and and i was experiencing a lot of music like alice dona and jesus lizard and the god bullies and you know local music so it was a it was a ton of music i was pushing into my system and so I got into music that was on the West Coast, and it turned out that there was no way that they were going to come over here. I'm going to have to get over there. And so I moved to the West Coast just to hear and see more music I was becoming obsessed with. I just kept learning more and more and more. So what was the original question here? Because <laughs> when it comes to music, I mean... I have so many places I go with it. Well, in the documentary, to me, one of the most interesting parts is you're explaining why you created your own zine. You basically yeah. said you came to Seattle, and even though there's the internet, you were still kind of old school and you know making the zine, but you basically compiled all the things you liked, which was Kiss, Heavy Metal, Punk Rock, Naked Leatherman, Pornography, and you put it all together, you know, in this artistic 
kind of cut and paste, a lot of clip art, you know, from magazines, you cut out photos of all the men you dug and the bands you liked. And you have this one moment in the documentary where you say, yeah, I'd go out and I just hand this to people so they would know exactly what I like. And I'm just thinking that's so cool. But at the same time, you hand this out to a lot of people, but I bet a lot of them, the gay crowd will go, oh, my God, heavy metal. I hate that. Or you hand it out yeah. to the punk and metal crowd and they go, oh, my God, this is so gay. So it's kind of like you're offending everyone. And I'm just thinking, when did you find that rare person that liked everything that you liked? You just had to keep on asking who was gay and who listened to punk. And I've, if I heard about you, I would probably try to find you. And I did make my way around and I tried to find people. And not that I did everybody, but like we, we at least got close enough to figure out like, you know, if we were going to date in some kind of way is I don't know. It's like that whole who is who at a show. And that's what my whole chit chat was about. Kind of like listening to the Donna's and all the boy crazy music that they had. I was extremely boy crazy to find that certain punk rock guy. And so I feel like I found him in many forms. I, I would even consider some of the straight dudes like still if they're still around me in some kind of way we have touched each other's heart in some weird way and you are still going to be considered like one of these one of these people on the list you know you're just as good as the gays you know that i have discovered on this on this journey of finding people that are similar who likes who likes our kind of music and horror movies and that kind of stuff. And at one point of my life for a very, well, for a very long time, it felt like these were very strong needs. I needed people that were gay and who liked horror movies and who liked punk rock as well. Like it was a need, a, a craving so to put together a porno magazine like that and to add punk rock and horror movies and just make sure that you knew this is the whole horror punk salad that I've got to offer. Oh, and by the way, I'm vegetarian, you know, like I needed this screaming thing because I was screaming on the inside to find somebody else who was gay. And so if they weren't... uh Dateable, the screaming continues, you know. Where are they? Well, you had a lot of hoops for your dates to jump through. Yeah. I still would. I still keep those hoops up. Although you are happily <laughs> married now, so you, you don't yeah, have to... Yeah, still, there are hoops that you can jump. And, I mean, have fun jumping them, but they're they're there. I mean, can you imagine having to start all over now? And I bet your list would be even longer and pickier. <laughs> I don't well, know. It depends on the day. You can be Cher, too, and date the pizza guy. It's fine. Well, I'm not saying, you know, your approach was stalkerish, but it actually sounds efficient, like, you know, within the scene... 
you kind of know of someone and you kind of say, hey, I want to meet them and ask around. I mean, that's not bad. At least you're doing your due diligence, you know, not just blindly, you know, going going into it. But what I'm wondering is you love straight tattooed, you know, macho band guys, you know, as part of your whole thing, did this fantasy man, you know, did you ever think, hey, you know, through my sheer determination, you know, I'm going to bring one of these straight rocker guys over to my side, you know, I'm going to seduce one of these, you know, tattoo gods into my bed. Yeah. Uh, did I think of that all the time, all the time? Or did you do it? Did you ever succeed? In certain ways of, you know, I'm just satisfied enough. Yeah. Yeah. Shocked myself a few times and that's fine. I mean, well, that's that's good for your ego. It's good for your. But there's something about a guy who's in a rock band. Mm-hmm. And maybe in one situation with his straight friends, there's this kind of, you know, macho, you know, talking about chicks and bragging and, but in a different context, when like this sincere gay guy comes up to him, maybe more in private, says, I dig you. I love your band. You're great. They can kind of, you know, disconnect from the gay threat you know, the, of their masculinity being, you know, tested and just kind of enjoy the adulation from this gay guy that really digs them. Was, yeah. was that your experience? Did you find some of these guys surprised you at times? And it's like they actually liked your attention. Yeah, but most of the time, not enough. Um, I would say one of the best times ever was with Dave Brocky from Guar, how, you know, I was Mr. Puppy Dog Eyes for a while, like a half hour around him until my friend introduced me to him and said, uh, we needed to talk. I had a whole lot of things I needed to ask him and stuff. And he screams, you want to fuck me, don't you? And just throws it in my face, knowing that I am the gay fan who is lusting after him and i have been and he's has to be aware of it from previous shows so due to the all that lust that i've thrown at him he decides because i think we spent about about two hours in the backstage area with everybody talking and then they finally went on and i went into the front row and he put on quite a show for me that was like dick in the face kind of stuff couch dancing just kind of really talking about me through the microphone very gay kind of stuff and that that album was super gay the whole the whole album is filled with gay lyrics so a dave brocky experience show like that and me actually putting my hand on his dick and getting on the front page of guar.net that's like that's a big success for me because um, after that show, I ran upstairs and I saw him in his towel and he made sure to tell me that I couldn't have his underwear because there were plenty more gay punk rock fags to entertain around the world. But he, he knew I wanted his underwear. I mean, this was a really cool moment where how many people got to have that much fun and 
go completely insane. I felt like a screaming Beatles fan going ape shit over him, and he was delivering. Do you think so, forming the dead vampires was just a way for you to extend this straight rock god seduction fantasy? Was the band just your vehicle to have access to these guys? Um, no, but if actually, if you considered rock bands having access to that kind of stuff, well, then fine, sure. Like, it certainly would have gone in that direction. Do you think more guys in bands, especially punk and metal, do you think more of them are bisexual than the, than they admit? That I do not know, because the bisexual mystery is it's quite a mystery, man. I don't think bisexuals say it enough, and I'm not around their drunk asses to figure it out, but I think they come out at night, and I don't know how many there are. I think they're mysterious. You know, the, um, the coming out of Rob Halford, do you remember when you first heard that? Um, okay. So when he officially said it, I made, did he come out on Rolling Stone magazine or something? And we all had to like run and check this issue and make sure if it was true. Is that kind of how yeah, it, was, it was probably in an interview? I'm guessing. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And you had to like run to the newsstand to check an issue and be like, Yes, I did read it in this. I think that's how that happened for me. And was that like a revelation? This, you know, masculine, you know, yeah. metal metal guy that people, you know, really looked up to. You know, the, the man of your fantasy suddenly becomes accessible. Yeah, I was in shock, actually. I really wasn't overthinking it or sitting around dreaming it. I always loved his clothes, but I never like put it to him that I was like, he just wasn't a guy that I was going to lust after because why chase him if, if it doesn't matter. But I wasn't listening to tons of Judas Priest during that time. So by the time he had come out, I was already like in a hardcore punk state and doing all my punk stuff. And I didn't care about metal anymore. Sure, I knew all the earlier Judas Priest, but I wasn't obsessed at all. So the coming out made me look at him again and it made me care more and it made me reassess the entire situation and go, well, what was happening while he was on tour then? Like seriously, because Faster Pussycat and all these like, you know, woman chasing bands that were clearly dressed as women and totally chasing women, confusing me like crazy. Um, what in the world was going on backstage at a Judas Priest concert then? So from what I what I see, I feel like he spent a lot of times in like hotels more by himself and like with minimal dates or something. But Yes, I had to do all my research. I was pretty obsessed with Rob after that, and I listened to everything. I listened to everything he put out after that. So when you're lusting after these male, straight, 
you know, rock gods, rock dudes, mm-hmm. especially with lots of tattoos and decent bodies. And then suddenly they tell you they are gay. They are interested in you. Do you think that would alter then your attraction to them? Would that suddenly take away an element that you actually wanted to be there? Um, if they actually did tell me that they were gay. Yeah, and suddenly they were accessible to you and they returned your interest. Yeah, no, I can see it happening, actually. I just don't want to be, like, pushy or anything, but when I'm around certain people, I feel certain vibes and I feel like, yeah, that could possibly go that way. And it doesn't, and, you know, sometimes it feels really exciting when you're with somebody who is like famous or you're at a convention or something, you know, it just, it's exciting. And if it did happen, like, yeah, what do you do? I think that's entirely up to you. I feel a big thing that you and I talked about, and some of it made the final documentary and some of it didn't was what a very macho atmosphere the band world is. You know, whether it's metal, punk, and not just the bands, but going to these venues, the people that come to watch the bands, a lot of testosterone in the room. And it's even harder, you know, when, say, you're on a bill with another band that's even more, you know, suburban, mainstream rocker guys, you know, the very... uh You know, the opposite of metrosexual crowd, you know, the the type of crowd that would feel very self-conscious if there is any gay element, you know, in in any of the bands that was overt. So they're there to see this more, you know, macho straight band. You guys come, you have a very mixed band, you know, a couple of you are gay, you know, three of you are straight or whatever the lineup is. And... It's like, you know, you talked to me a lot about just feeling that vibe, and um, Chainsaw talked about that too. It's not just the bands, but, you know, the crowds, and how that kind of exciting, you know, testosterone feeling can also turn into almost fear, like, oh my God, you know, if they, you know, knew we were gay, they might turn on us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've felt that palpably, haven't you, in some of your shows? Yeah, um, I I think that was more of the anxiety of going there and what's it going to be like tonight kind of vibe. But I can't remember being completely terrified of any place that I was at during any time. I did play with a band I did not like, and I remember talking to them afterwards, and I still did not like them, and I didn't like their crowd. And, you know, that was probably like, eight bands on one day but you know their annoying crowd sucked but i don't know what to do about that i just knew that i wasn't going to play with them again but um i have been in places that i have gone to see a show that i certainly would have wanted to play with so um say demented argo came to town And I would have wanted to be on this bill, but I didn't have dead vampires yet. But I went to the show, and I think it was so terrifying that um, I left. I couldn't even stay for the first band to come on, let alone three or four bands that night. So, What terrified you? Was it the band or the audience? 
the audience was actually terrifying at this show. I had been to this bar and I was excited to go back to this bar, but the audience was actually so horrible. Like it was like rockabilly had been shifting into this like gang violence kind of bullshit. And, um, it wasn't like rockabilly shows sounded like they would be fun to be at any longer because there was a huge skinhead following and there was a huge mishmash of whatever was going on. And, you know, when you have this gay anger towards, you know, not, first of all, not enough people are gay. And then you add like all the guys are like angry and this is kind of this car rumbling chick banging scene. Like they don't go well together. So if you think about how Chainsaw didn't want to play rockabilly shows it's because you know he knows how to bang too but it's in a leather bar it's not this car scene and so that's where this gay clash was coming from and and i've seen gay rockabilly but it's not that exciting to us um it's kind of like big deal so we kind of were in a gay rockabilly scene for a little bit. And um, that's just the kind of dumb place we would have played. But nothing scary. I mean, I think a Gigi Allen show is pretty scary. And I thought that Demented Argo show was scary. So I don't want to do a scary show. I want to go where people are willing to be crazy or it's just i don't know cool lighting or something and it's so ironic too because you're a hardcore horror movie fan and you can stomach some pretty major stuff you know in in a horror movie how do you use horror movies to overcome your fear you know you're a big fan of the revenge horror movie which right. is you know qu quite an interesting subgenre of someone being picked on or bullied, or worse, or attacked, or assaulted, violated. And then to see that comeuppance, you know, that person gets to fight back and make those people pay. You know, how, how do you parallel that with, you know, growing up a sensitive gay boy who oh. suddenly, you know, embraces this pretty tough music genre? You know, do you see any parallel there? Yeah, all of it was for protection. I, I saw my bodyguard very young and Friday the 13th very young. So the, this bully thing was in my mind pretty quickly because my brother was five years older and he said, you know, certain kids acted certain ways in certain grades in school. So you always had this fear and this warning that something bad was going to come in the next certain amount of years. And so all the movies that I watched was this always thinking of this warning. And so what was going to protect you was something that would, you know, basically destroy the asshole. And so sometimes I would see it as something was getting revenge, you know, and, um, later on, if you think of Linda Blair getting revenge, in Savage Streets, it's kind of like that. So it's, uh, I guess the world being dangerous was put in my head pretty quickly. I heard horror stories and stuff 
about the real world and I heard about serial killers when I was very, very little and it was scary. It gave that stuff gave me nightmares. I was scared to watch certain things on TV. But when I started to see a different angle that um you know, there's there was an understanding. There was a certain sympathetic understanding to some of these monsters in the movies. They're all well, very you, different. You, you have this crazy love for Savage Streets starring Linda Blair, and it kind of changed your life. That's one part of the documentary I like is when you describe the night you saw it. Could you recreate that for me? Yeah. Uh, it was probably a four o'clock showing at a movie theater, but it looked awesome because there was this lady with a crossbow and I had seen Angel before. So I I was into like tough chick movies. And so it just looked like a toughy, really tough movie. We'd seen the trailer on commercial on TV, too. So you go to the theater and the cool poster is the cool movie you're going to see. And so. Yeah, we got in and we watched it and I just was in full on shock the whole time that it was so rock and roll and these girls were so badass. The music was cool and and then the greasy slimy guys were hot, you know, but it was like you were wondering, you know, you put yourself in those positions. So you're wondering what it would be like, but then the guys are like super bad and then they totally rape Linda Blair's sister and everybody's pissed off and then the guys are really bad and they kill one of the chicks throw her off a bridge you know it's like getting seriously bad and you starting to form a hate for these guys and um, you're really on Linda's side like what would you do kind of thing and so her reaction to what would you do was you know, throwing paint on people and lighting them on fire and shooting them with a crossbow. And at a very small age, I really had enough anger in my head to think that that was the cool thing to do. And so I agreed with her that that was awesome, you know. And so I knew there were deer hunters everywhere and I'd never seen a crossbow before, but I thought the coolest thing in the world would be to have a crossbow after that. And that was like 1983. So I was only. And I, and I love when then you came home because didn't your like aunt take you to it because you were so young? Yeah, my aunt would take me because I would tell her what I saw on HBO and she'd tell me. And so HBO was all we ever did unless we went to the theater. And so that was one of my one of our choices of movie day. And she brought me home and said, my mom asked how the movie was. And my uh, aunt said, well, there was a lot of bush. <laughs> and it was severely a lot of bush for me to see at the time. So I wasn't sure at that time of my life do you look away? What do you do? But it felt like Bush and pussy and everything, no matter what age I was at, it was pushed in our faces within our music or within every R movie you saw. It was like, it became an annoyance to me. And I'm sorry, but it was just like, as a gay child, you're like, where is the dick? And there never was because our movies created this shame 
towards it and it's kind of like i don't know i grew up in a bit in a lot of shame zones and if you think about how much dick we got to see when we were younger we didn't get to see enough so fuck that we're angry and so the angry gay comes out well there's no shortage of women who are attracted to men who end up being you know violent and abusive you know, it's at first, though, they like the confidence and the swagger and the muscles and, you know, whatever. But unfortunately, you know, that fantasy can turn into just a living nightmare. But for, you know, a gay man to be attracted to that same kind of straight man, you know, from afar, and then you realize, oh, you know, if he knew you were gay, he'd, you know, probably beat you up. Mm-hmm. What's the psychology for a gay guy to be attracted to this abusive straight guy? I do not know because I honestly see the reality of it in gay culture where there is very dominant sex and people like just are banging real, real hard. So there's just an attraction to it. I think it's the person who wants it and I don't and I see it and I think, uh, damn, it's it's just too hardcore. But you know what? it's just a different person there that is totally fine like if two guys want to bang it out hard i'll fine i'll watch it's kind of like watching boxing you know they're just gonna do it no matter what so so this is about about 15 years ago since you started the band and since you got to be in that world with other bands in the audience and now you're a little older and wiser how has your attraction to men change? Has it mellowed out? Do you look for a more middle-of-the-road balance? Yeah, I don't think there's... There's not, like, a punk rock fixation. Like, it doesn't matter anymore. There's there's just too many types, so... It doesn't matter. And also, like, I think that everything you ever lusted after, like a movie star or something, it's all faded away. So in like a granny form, as you get older, you know, oh, forget it. You know, like it's just been too long waiting or they've like like time actually did take away their beauty and now they're just ugly now. Like the time has expired on so many people. So uh, speaking of, Squiggy would have been my biggest crush and Squiggy just died yesterday. You mean from Laverne and Shirley, Lenny and Squiggy, Squiggy? Yes. And so if you think about how long it would have taken for me, like, I think he was very attractive. And how much now, time Wasn't his name about... David something? Yes. What was his full name? I can't remember his full name. Isn't that terrible of us? <laughs> Lang, Lang and something? Yeah, something. And he kind of... Well, if you remember him from Laverne and Shirley, you know, had the greaser 50s look with the slicked back hair. Yeah, very rockabilly. Mm-hmm. He was kind of rockabilly, yeah. Yeah. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that he passed away. Yeah. So, so for you... For 30-some years. So for you, when you were first in the band, you were still like in your 20s, right? When you were in Dead Vampires, weren't you like in your late 20s by then? I don't know. 2004? 
Yeah, so about late 20s, it oh, sounds like, like. Yeah, I would be 29, 30, yeah. Okay. So as part of you just think back to that time, you know, with this romantic notion of just the young you, and isn't that easy to look back and just to think, kind of ignore the bad parts and just remember what it felt like to be young and everything new and exciting. I mean, is there still that part of you that romanticizes that? Yeah, it comes in spurts and I have it quite often. And then I, it's sad when it goes away because it's like, you wish things were happening right now. And so, yes, it, it's just uh, it comes in waves. Because if you try to sustain that into middle age, don't you become like the housewives of Beverly Hills who try to look, you know, 25 into their 50s and never kind of give up the party lifestyle? Yeah, I wish I could do that, but I can't. I can turn the switch off and I can just go to work too. So I have a bunch of switches and I know how to just turn them on and off. But in spite of that, you still are kind of fueled by your lust and your love for not just, you know, these macho rocker dudes, but just creative people, too. And isn't part of being turned on by Guar and bands like that is they're just really talented and creative. It is that it is it is very sexy to be talented and creative. So. I find that is the number one thing to most of the attractions that I have, no matter what. So like of the artist Skinner, who is multi, a multi purpose artist or something, I don't know, they can do music and movies and paint and make figures and clothes and it's endless. And it's like somebody like that is like, Oh my God, that's my main, that's my attraction in life is anybody who can be that creative and just every bit of it's good. It's so impressive. So when you would play a gig with dead vampires and you're, you know, playing drums, which is the most tribal of instruments, but all of you, you know, feeding off the energy of the crowd, expressing yourselves creatively you know, at the end of a show, do you just have this incredible pent-up sexual energy? No, not exactly. I don't know. Sex comes and goes whenever, but most of the time people aren't there for that. So, like, no. No. You, you didn't feel charged up after everyone, you know, in the audience, you know, idolizing you guys. No. No, that was a weird time, and that was why I ended up having a leg surgery. So if I would have been sexually crazed, I would have been in full-on pain. So definitely not. I th I don't know. I was, like, no matter what, I was still a housewife to Chainsaw. And that relationship was very housewifey for a while, till the very, very end. And then we started to act like hoes, I guess. But um, so at the time, it was more like Paul McCartney and Wings, and yeah, you and Chainsaw were Paul and Linda McCartney. Yes, yes. So like, no, I wasn't sex crazed. If you think of we were Paul and Linda, so you had some circulation problems with your blood vessels in your legs. Yeah.
So if I would have thought about sex, I would have had circulation problems and I would have gone into full on pain. So I had surgery to have that stopped and it worked. So did you like have blood vessels removed from your legs? Whatever veins they took out, they took them out, but it's, it's better than ever. It still hurts sometimes, but it's not like, not like was it, it some was, weird chain reaction where if you got an erection, it would divert the blood and your, and your leg would throb or what was it? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much that. So if you can imagine there was some kind of blood clotting going on and the clotting became very painful, but blood and all that helps circulate air and all this to your heart. So if I would have kept on having these clots, you know, I would have had heart trouble later on. And so I find it difficult to walk and do a lot of steep walking nowadays. So I don't know what it would be like to play drums really heavy at this point of life anyways. Well, after the band broke up, you were looking for other creative outlets. So what were those outlets? Oh, well, my crafting, I always wanted to keep on drawing and making things. And so I got into clothes for the most part because dead vampires really came out of um, things like a thrift store kind of pile of junk. So if I had a new pile of junk, which would be more sparkly, um, I think I was into the new direction of being a designer. So I started like designing my own clothes. I've done several jackets, like maybe up to 60 or something. Well, kind of your trademark is men's sport coats, like solid colored sport coats that you put these original rhinestone designs it's like you attach in some cases like hundreds and hundreds like a ton of rhinestones to these jackets yeah like 15 20 pound jackets and they feel like your armor they're a disco armor so i can put all that on blazers and then i'll sew a bunch of patches on my jean jackets and just cut up a whole bunch of t-shirts Mainly, I wear clothes until I change sizes or something, and everything turns into patches. The clothes get old, and so a lot of my stuff has been worn by me, and it just gets shredded by me and re-sewn by me. Well, one of my favorite parts of the documentary is when you give Ed Neal from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie one of your jackets, and... Indulge me. I'll set up the story a bit, and then you can talk about it. Because it was really cool. But what was interesting about that whole experience is um, it was in Portland at the Living Dead Horror Convention. And it's when I first started uh, filming you. We were just pretty early on into starting on the documentary. And the thing is, I didn't know you that well either. And how weird that I, I joined you at your table at, at this convention. Although I trusted you, we had done some horror swap meets before that. And I think we we're getting to know each other pretty well. But hey, there's nothing like traveling out of state to a convention to get to know somebody really fast. Although we took separate cars, so we 
It was probably better that we weren't stuck in a car th with each other three hours each way. We would have been really sick of each other fast. <laughs> At least you would have been sick of me really fast. <laughs> but, and you getting there first lets you get set up before I got there because one thing you got to know about Spanky is when he's setting up his table at a convention, stay the fuck out of his way. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you just like to do what you're doing, you know, not be interrupted. Then once all you're set up, you're cool. But no, I, I get you. I get that. I, I say that half jokingly, but you're very directed and you know what you need to do. But once you're set up and the customers come, you're very friendly. And that's when the fun begins, which I think you probably learned that from the band days. You get serious when you set up, you know, do your sound check. Then when the, the public comes, then you can relax and put on a show. Is that a good analogy? That's what I do, and I try to pass out cookies in between the set, so... Well, there you go. So anyways, so we're at this convention, and, you know, you sold really cool t-shirts. I mean, you buy all these full retail for yourself. Then when you get sick of them, you sell them off, so they're, most of them are practically new. Unlike someone that just buys this stuff to make a profit, I mean, you're just bringing your valuable full retail collection and movies, DVDs, VHS, posters, amazing horror soundtracks on vinyl. I mean, you've got the stuff that people want. So you always have a lot of people come to your booth. Well, anyway, so you've got this big booth and I've got like two square feet of it in the corner, but I'm not really there to sell stuff. I'm there to videotape you, but I did have a token little section which was fun because that made me appreciate, you know, what it's like to be a vendor at these events. But what was so cool is that at that convention, they had a Texas Chainsaw Massacre section where they had several people from that. And Ed Neal, of course, from the original. And, you know, to make a long story short, you guys connected, you showed him your jacket and you gave him one and he loved it and he loved it so much he came back to your booth and presented you with a poster from the original texas chainsaw massacre with signatures from the original actors including two who had passed away i think it was marilyn burns and gunner hansen mm -hmm. plus ed and you know one or two more i can't remember but you guys really bonded and for some reason, I was, you know, getting confident and I was a little shyer, but he was a nice guy and, you know, he was kind of into what we were doing. So I got a lot of that on camera, you know, your interaction with him. And, you know, at these conventions, things happen so quickly and it's hard to spend quality time with people. And I just really struck with how much quality time you guys spent together. And after your interaction, he actually put your jacket on and was wearing it there at the convention. So I just want to know what that was like for you. And, you know, we always want to have a really cool interaction with an idol or someone we admire. You know, this was pretty darn cool. You know, I'd say that's an A plus for interacting with, you know, an actor you admire. But just what did that feel like to be more of a peer and to have him, you know, wear your jacket, you know, you as an artist, you as a clothing designer? You know, how did that whole experience make you feel? that was a successful moment because 
the entire time I knew that I had these jackets with me. Now, they were either going to be with me or they were going to be something that I could get into the hands of somebody super cool. And so the whole super cool thing to me was going to be an actor that I was going to meet at any of the conventions, whether it was Seattle or California or wherever we were going to go in our future. So whenever I did get the jackets into somebody famous hands, um, that was a complete success. So that was total joy to have all of it put on video um, to keep forever because a lot of this that I've gotten to do, it's just a memory now. There's no way I have video of the other people. So that one, that one's really good. It was really good. And I think for the actors, sometimes we think, oh, they always get stuff from fans. Oh, they're always being fawned over. And that's not always the truth. And even if they are, you know, a lot of them are still open to get something that's, you know, meaningful and well thought out. And I think for, you know, when you were there with Ed, I think that really struck him like, wow, what a nice, substantial and very personal, you know, gift you gave him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people remember this one of the kind stuff, especially when they really like it, though. He'll remember me forever and... And so will I. And like, how many hours does it take to make one of those jackets that you that you embellished? Oh, I could make the entire jacket in three or four days, probably being really quick. But I have to fold it over and have some dry time in some weird areas. So I have to give it a little time to dry. But yeah, I can get it done pretty quick. Four days. Well, we did a pretty good job of, I think, meeting people there. And, you know, the thing about these conventions is some people just plant themselves in a booth and fold their arms and cross their legs and sneer at everyone who walks by and, you know, basically don't make many meaningful interactions. It's like they're daring everyone. Yeah. It seems like we had this spirit of let's be friendly, let's meet people, let's learn about people, let's just not always make it about us but let's learn about the other people here too. Yeah, it takes outgoing personalities to keep these things functioning properly or it looks like a a total like nerd hell, you know? It's okay to mix it up with the nerds and whatever, but like if you don't got personality and you just kind of want to dress up and stand around like a like a rock, you know, that I don't know what's exciting about that and it makes the convention look bad, but a lot of us get out there and a lot of us will chit chat and meet each other and, you know, throw your personality out there and you will have a really good experience meeting these people. Yeah. And it's almost like everyone's going to these conventions waiting for someone else to set the tone as opposed to setting their own tone or, you know, creating a little party in their own booth to attract people. Mm hmm. Do you think we created a little party in our booth? <laughs> I think we have enough cool stuff that there's just endless conversations. You will get trapped if you walk into our area. You'll be trapped because we have too much to say and so much variety to show. 
I think the real key to it all is at first I, I didn't think our booth was well placed because we were facing this concrete block wall, but then it was like right across from the restrooms. And what's funny is everyone has to use the restroom at some point during the day, stars and celebrities included. So by default, we got to see every celebrity as they walked out of the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a vulnerable moment because they're like, oh, do they tuck their shirt in? Does anyone you know, see them coming out of the john? So in that vulnerable moment, we step in. Hi. Oh, look, it's Marilyn from the Munsters. Hi, Marilyn. Yeah, we were kind of pulling them out of the bathroom. <laughs> and then, oh, Adrian King from Friday the 13th, who was a sweetheart. And we got her on camera for the documentary. And, and these people were so nice, but it's kind of like it was easier to interact with them when they were away from their table. You know what I mean? Yeah, well... They're out and about. They feel a little bit more free. They're, they don't have the next person in line right now. And we both hate to grovel. I mean, you grovel more than I do. When it comes to these celebrities, you, you have a lot of patience. And I admire that. But at the same time, it's like, and we've talked about this, you know, you want to see them as an equal. You don't want that imbalance of, they're the big star, you know, we're the groveling fan. And it's sometimes hard to really weigh that out because, you know, you're not just a casual fan at these events. You know, you're a vendor and you're the drummer of dead vampires. I mean, you have your own celebrity in certain circles. So yeah. it's very situational. And it's kind of how do you just blindly go up to, you know, Barbara Steele's table and say, I'm not just a groveling fan. I'm Count Spankula from Dead Vampires, you know? Well, I certainly said it every single time I could, and I made sure people would have CDs or albums throughout all the years that I went there. So if I was paying to get your autograph or a picture with you, I was also giving you my stuff for free. So mm -hmm. I did it as much as I could. If And uh, even if I wasn't paying for somebody or something like that i would still give free stuff to everybody as as i walked through the convention i think your last convention crypticon seattle didn't you kind of bond with d wallace yeah see why couldn't we have been making the documentary that year we could have totally got d wallace on camera I don't know, but it was a very uh, motherly moment, and she's super cool. I'm so glad I talked to her, and I like all of her movies, but Frightener sticks with me because she's so schizo in it, and and it's hard to play schizo, especially when you see her and how happy she is. And, and she's one of the friendliest celebrities at these conventions. Yeah, she's brought all this positivity, and she has all these good reasons, too. So she's full of good information. And uh, so, yeah, my special moment with her, it's a hard one to talk about, but she's a mother. Mm -hmm. Well, this whole um, festival circuit or um, convention circuit is interesting. I think when we you know, started doing the documentary, I'd been to some 
conventions, but not a lot. I mean, that wasn't, you know, a big experience for me. So for me, I got to see it a little more from the outside and learn as we went. And I think that was an interesting process because these fan conventions, they formalize the fan experience. You know, they make these rules of, okay, here's the person at the table, here's a line, this is how much it costs for a photo or an autograph, this is how much it costs to uh, have your picture taken with them, and it's so commodified, and it kind of it kind of threw me off at first. I, you know, the first convention I was at where I actually had a table, I didn't realize the celebrities like charged you for an autograph. Like if you brought your own picture of them mm-hmm. or, or an album or a video to sign, you know, that a lot of them charge you. I thought, oh my God, I didn't know that. And there's this whole system where they have like a handler that works for the festival or the convention that kind of keeps track to make sure people pay and, they're kind of like the buffer so that the celebrity doesn't have to bring that up. So what do you think of that whole process and how that gives this weird formalized fan and um, celebrity interaction? Well, I think they need protection. They need somebody to care about watching their stuff while they can talk and everything. So um, I don't mind it at all. I would like to have the job myself and be able to sit with them for the day and be able to do it. But like, I don't want to feel rushed. I mean, is it us that are rushing ourselves through the line when we're so concerned that our time is up or, or what is it? But, um, you know, I'm not too crazy about um, meeting other people while I'm trying to meet somebody else, though. So... If you're having a special moment, you know, you're probably going to have a certain time. You're going to want the handler to keep it quiet while you're having your moment, you know? Is that what you mean? You just don't want somebody there while you really want to talk to somebody? Well, just the fact that we're paying them to be nice to us for 20 seconds. Right. It's very hooker money feeling. It'll always feel like a hooker moment to me. Especially if it was like an old movie crush of yours at some point. And you're not afraid to shell out some big bucks to get signatures. I mean, when I see you at these events, pretty much everything you're making at your booth, you're spending on autographs and merchandise from other vendors. Right. Look at how much we have to get rid of and they just have to like sign and smile and possibly get up for a photo. It's like... Holy cow. I mean, we're so underpaid, but, you know, we got to be, we're an attraction to them. We're having a flea market to keep these people busy while they've possibly come to see you. You know, we're kind of like the entertainment too, while while they figure out how they're going to go connect with you. So over the years, how many celebrity photo and signatures have you paid for oh i don't know i've made a book uh but it wasn't that many years to accrue so many like more than 20 oh for sure more than 50 more than 50 
So at $40 a pop, would you say you've spent over $2,000 on all them? I I don't know. I mean, sure, with the various prices, but I don't know. Some some are from different places, too. Like, I think I would scoop up an autograph anywhere I possibly could. So if I was at a small wrestling event in Tacoma, Washington, and the honky-tonk man suddenly appears like he did, I'm getting his autograph for five or ten bucks or whatever it is. And so prices will vary, but, you know, if they really did come to that thing and they brought, like, a suitcase full of pictures and stuff... Yeah, I want it. It's it's like a craving. And I do have a thing for wrestling like that. So um, I brought up a memory with Honky Tonk Man from Michigan from like 1985 or something. 87 maybe. But he remembered exactly where it was. And he said, oh yeah, Kellogg Center or Kellogg Arena. And I'm like, oh, I had forgotten, and here he is right in front of me, remembering exactly where this incident is with him. That was cool. So, so what's a stronger kind of... attraction for you? Straight, tattooed rocker dudes, or straight, muscled, oiled-up wrestler dudes? Ah, <laughs> uh, wrestler dudes. Oh my god, the... the... The um, well, tattooed dude. rocker dudes will be so disappointed. Oh, so sorry. There's more muscle ones. There's more availability in the gay community for that. And so you can at least look at the pictures and know that it's true. And for the rock ones, I am sorry, but the gay rock scene is not full of tons of hot dudes. And it, when it comes down to like wondering who is the hot dude in the rock scene... It's kind of a mystery for me. I'm not as hot for the rock scene as I used to be, so... Like, would you be really into Hulk Hogan? No, not Hulk. Not Hulk. Um, or like Shawn Michaels? No. See, none of the long-haired blonde ones. Long hair was never my thing, so that eliminates long hair rock and long hair wrestlers. Um, Triple H, he's got long hair. <laughs> yeah, isn't it short now though? Now that he it's short, still, he was pretty hot though. Once he he started to show himself, I remember. Um, I loved John Cena for a while, and I don't anymore. I don't see how I did, but you know, people look different at different times. So one part of the documentary is showing just your massive collection, which is horror memorabilia. Horror videos, both DVD and a lot of VHS. Vinyl records, both soundtracks, vampire disco, and all this cool stuff. Books and your Fangoria magazines before you sold them on eBay. And toys and video game merchandise and tinky winky dolls that make noise. And your your I mean, one half of your house, the whole bottom part of your house was like, you know, one part, you know, amusement park, bookstore, video arcade, fun house. I mean, it just had so much cool stuff and you had the space to display it, you know, figures, figurines. And I know since we started, you know, doing the documentary, you've sold some of it off. 
But since we first, you know, started doing the documentary five years ago, how has your attitude just toward collecting in general changed? Well, I'm still a collector, and um, it's something that's really hard to stop doing, but um, I still am a collector. There's some Garbage Pail Kid things that are still happening, and I keep up with some modern stuff. There's uh, Skinner is an artist that I still represent so i just got some skinner face masks even though i made 700 myself i still needed to do that and you know i brought it up to lauren and he said it's cool we support rad artists you know hell yeah we want skinner's masks so the artists behind gpk you know we're really into that the collecting thing is still there it just depends on like how heated up is a certain collection right now? You know, over the past two years, it was Skylanders, and that was a really fun collection to do. So it's completely- In the past year, you sold off your Skylander collection. Uh, only, only the extras and things like that. But I have the complete... I'm complete on all my master sets, and I've done all the work inside of them and everything. So... It's like I don't just get the set. I take really good care of it and I preserve it. So I know everything about my figures I have. And I'm just not collecting them now because I have enough and it's done. And so the trading card world won't end, though. That's a really big deal. Does your Do your collections ever cause friction in your relationship? Yes. Yeah. So this is my last year selling on eBay. So I have to really like bring it down with collecting and selling. But that's going to be a huge shift this next coming year. So wait, why do you say your last year? Is this something you just decided to do? Oh, they're treating me like it's a store and I'm a business or something. So I'm not going to do that because I'm not. I'm still just a punk rocker who has creative stuff and like certain things for sale. But I'm not a business, and I can't afford to do the taxes that they have tied to it now. So I have been giving a lot away. So mainly everything turned into giving. And it's, well, it's, one it's valuable collectible you had were those old Masters of the Universe play sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The plastic was... castles and all that. And... You you sold those, didn't you? Yeah, the castle itself was worth like two to three thousand dollars. Oh my god! Just the castle, yeah. Now, did you sell all those to one dealer? Mm, no, it did get split up in the three different countries. Really, Spain took that big important castle, though. But, you know, when I collect, I need all the pieces. So a castle like that, it was me who put all the pieces together. And it's just kind of something that I do in a weird Rain Man collector way is that I like the assembly of it. And I like to say that this is completed, you know. One so thing we could really make an entire documentary on you is just you and your Garbage Pail Kids collection. Yeah, I mean, it's all about numbers and putting everything in order and knowing what's missing. And I know 
exactly what's missing in all of those sets. And most people would not know how to look at a wall and understand how I would be able to tell you what's missing or the majority is complete because I fixated on it for so long I completed it. <clears throat> See, one fear I had with this documentary is that when people saw it, they would see, and on the one hand, this punk rock guy, very working class, man of the people, not afraid to get his hands dirty, works at the food bank, very giving, you know, very um, socially conscious. And then on the flip side, um, not afraid to, you know, put down a few thousand dollars for Masters of the Universe playset or... <laughs> How many thousands on, you know, an instant garbage pail kids collection? And mm -hmm. sort of like on the one hand, and I know you've lived, you know, off top ramen at times in your life, like we all have the lean, you know, periods, especially when you're in the band. But it's kind of like, um, you know, reconciling these two worlds, top ramen, punk rocker, and this guy that um, thinks nothing of building up these, you know, thousand dollar collections i mean did you ever think you could get to the point in your life where you had the luxury to indulge in this collecting no no um it's just something that i have never been able to stop doing it's another show that's a um dr phil show we'll have to work on <laughs> the right. intervention yeah, it's a, there's nothing I've been able to keep. So it's been a constant rotation. So like if you had something for a certain amount of time, you're going to have to return it back into the wild. And so one of the things that I would say that um, makes it hard to keep relationships really is because you're always becoming like a seller so people can look at you like you're always just trying to sell something or something so but you when you always want to be a store you always do want to sell something so i have to close the door to that um want for selling even if i'm selling it for cheap to a, another store that wants to resell you know there's still just this need for getting things and having to resell them at some point. Well, in the documentary, you have some scenes with Ernie, AKA Helen bed. And you guys are actually on the computer on eBay and talking about the toys you remembered from your childhood and how as an adult, you seek out those toys to bring back your childhood memories. And I know when I was editing the, documentary to me that was kind of like the theme that's kind of what struck me after five years is that and the band you know your life has been this way to tap into what formed you as a child you know watching kiss listening to kiss and you know watching the monster shows and watching the monster host and you know you as an adult creatively using your art and using your collecting as a way to tap back into that ideal that you formed in your mind when you were a kid. 
yeah, I'm, I maybe I'm never growing up. I'm always going to be that kid that always liked these toys and did these things and listened to that music or something. But, um, when you're in a relationship with somebody, you have, you're not always a hundred percent available to be yourself at all times. So you have to like share the room and share the air and whatever. So if Lauren and I are different people and we're not completely obsessed with horror movies at the moment, we're not going to be like having this horror movie vibe right then. So that kind of stops me from listening to certain things at certain times or whatever. But, um, if I was single or if I was in another relationship with another person that was just completely wild and crazy about music all the time, I think I would be wild and crazy about music all the time. So my surroundings are basically, uh, whatever is going on in my life. And so that's why I have so many gears and so many different styles of music I listen to. And, so many different things I will watch. and But when it comes down to a creative, uh, something I want to do, it's always going to be like my favorite styles combined and trying to be that again. Something a very Pee Wee's Playhouse, very comedy horror and always punk rock inspired, crafty, funny thing. And a garage rock too, just a low budget punk rock vibe. That's pretty much what everything is going to happen out of me. In the documentary, um, your husband, Lauren, appears in it. And there's a meaningful moment when you guys are talking about your first date or the first time you go out to a movie together to the theater and how very early on it kind of showed he had a much lower tolerance for horror, especially horror that hits home in sort of a, you know, a domestic violence way when you guys saw Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. And it was really interesting to hear both your sides of, you know, how that first date affected you, where, you know, you were introducing him to something you really liked, which was horror movies. And you quickly learned that he didn't like horror movies as much as you did. And this movie in particular he especially didn't like, and it really, I'm surprised you guys had a second date after that night. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to explain because I always was into the eighties horror and I hated the nineties horror. And I certainly hated the 2000 horrors and that kind of stuff. So when you're going to see a new movie, which is Halloween, and I can't even remember what year it came out. Um, I am really ready for it because, for one, it's Halloween, and I've liked them all so far. And then um, Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses was amazing, so this must be totally amazing. So I've got another huge need to see this movie. And, um, yeah, but I have to deal with the time period. And so this time period has made it a certain style of movie that I'm not really into. And I'm bringing Lauren. So he's like, sure, whatever, let's go. Can't be that bad. Well, I didn't realize that, like, Lauren has been able to watch nearly anything 
pretty much anything. I'm pretty shocked when I hear that he's already seen something and I haven't even seen it because it was gross. So he's seen it all. And that was just, it was such an annoying movie. It was just like so much screaming and bitching and kind of like family rapish kind of shit. But it was so unfun and that Lauren was so cringing and having so much unfun that I didn't even want to be in the theater. I was like, oh, this is really ugly. Like, I hate being with people that are really annoyed. So, yeah, it made, it made an impact on me that it was real annoying, too. I guess if I would have seen it without him, maybe I would have just gone over my head and been like, whoa, that was really, like, it's just a graphic movie. Just check, done. But I don't know. Since it bugged him so much, it sticks with me that um, people don't want to see all this abuse if they've been abused. How have you so, integrated wow. your your horror lifestyle with Lauren? I mean, do, do you come together on certain things? Do you know what spectrum of horror he'll enjoy watching with you and which things to just watch by yourself? He loves anything to do with creatures and fantasy and mainly fantasy and a huge sci-fi. So he's seen everything sci-fi and I mean everything. The horror, he's mainly seen it all, but as a preference, um, he doesn't like to watch things that are too old anymore. It's just going way too far back for him. But I wouldn't be surprised if he'd already seen it. So he's been a TV addict for his whole life, I feel. So... It's amazing what he remembers and has seen. He can watch a lot, but my interest in horror has gone downhill, so I'm still waiting for cool things to come back. How about music-wise? Where do you guys meet? We're really only into disco together. The rest of it's kind of hit or miss. He's okay with whatever I'll play, but disco is his passion. So he's kind of doing the kids in the hall gleaming X stuck in the favorite moment moment of your life with a certain playlist to disco. Mm -hmm. And how important in the end is it that you have those types of common interests with your partner? Do you have to like everything to be with someone, you know, like the same things? No, but it does help. It keeps the conversation going in a certain direction or whatever until whatever blows up. But um, no, I think we're just our balance. We're just totally leveled out and available to be around each other no matter what our mood is. I mean, that's nice. I, I feel just because somebody isn't going to obsess on something or stare at a picture just as long as I want to um, doesn't mean that they don't like it as much as I do, and it's okay if they don't. But that's pretty much the extent of it. I mean, how many? what are you going to do if you love a record so much? Go listen to it a hundred more times by yourself until you burn out? Like, it's okay to like different things, and um, it if you're identical twins, cool, have a blast together. Mm -hmm. I feel I'm in a very different relationship right now, and that's fine. And we uh, find ways to change as we get older, and it, it, it improves. It's awesome. 
I feel like we're a very progressive relationship. Mm -hmm. During the course of being the subject of this documentary and being interviewed many times and kind of being under the microscope, what's the biggest personal revelation you had? Oh, well, probably just uh, learning as I get older and realizing um, going through death is very interesting and sad and terrible and you will learn from bad things no matter how bad it feels you will learn from bad things and that's really eye-opening so i consider myself somebody who's had an awakening because i just woke up to so much scary scary shit and um i've become wise since i've observed this crazy world and that's just eye-opening oh my god it continues every day. Just keep learning. Stay smart. During the course of the documentary, did it bring back an appreciation of your work with dead vampires? Meaning, did you let go of some of that? And did you regain some of your pride in what you had created? I don't think I've ever let go of it, which is kind of the thing about me that maybe I'm, maybe it's all in my head, but I'm not the one who's ever really let go of it. Um, I had to put something on pause and things changed, but I've always been interested in the, this thing that I've worked a lot on and I've accumulated so many pieces for, like just to have the tapes, you know, I'm kind of the golem of the tapes. Like they are my precious and I have been a keeper to it. So I've never let go. Um, otherwise I would have thrown this stuff away. So I cannot, uh, let it go. It is something that I'm super proud of. And so it makes me, it makes me feel like there's more to share and I would like to put it out in another format. I've always wanted to do a box set. I just don't know how to mass produce something right now. And right there is before a the, we started uh, filming you for the documentary, you had just put out a vinyl album of the dead vampires. So you were the one that took something that I think had only been on a CD before. So mm -hmm. you were already in the process of trying to revitalize that and preserve that, but in a really cool vinyl pressing. Yeah, and then there's other records too. So there's demo records, which keeps us in that cr uh, cramps kind of territory of a beginner band and take all of this stuff out of rock and roll to get the sound. It's very stripped down, dead vampires. So um, it's it can all be digital, but still, I think as a package it looks so much cooler so for me and for the collector world i see a very small limited amount of box sets that needs to be created but out of everyone in the band i mean you're the archivist that mm -hmm. that has fallen to you which makes sense because you know you're the collector this seems like an extension of you know you're collecting and you're also good at organizing and taking care of like when someone goes to your home and sees your collection, everything is, you know, alphabetized and, you know, protected in a sleeve or, you know, all these things. 
you know, you take a lot of care in what you're collecting, whether it's, you know, your personal collection or the Dead Vampires archive. Mm -hmm. how, how did you get that way? Were you, did you, were you like a librarian's assistant when you were a kid? <laughs> I wanted to be. Um, I don't know. I've been sorting everything ever since I can imagine. I, memory was my first favorite game. I remember kicking ass at it. And any kind of strategy game like that, I was, I was very interested in playing. So when I got one of those like toolkits, you know, the wall ones with all the drawers and you can put screws in them. I got one of those and one of those little labeler tag maker machines and just started labeling all of my drawers. That's where the real organization got happening. See, when you're an old man, I could totally see you curating a real specialized museum. Yeah. Oh, I would. I wanted to, I wanted to do the Garbage Pail Kids Museum in Seattle, something like EMP, where, you know, not that big, but a cafe museum for Garbage Pail Kids where the artists and stuff, anybody could visit and do signings. And we would always have and be knowledgeable and the kings of having the most Garbage Pail Kids stuff in the city. I really wanted to do that. So I wish so bad I could have a business that would succeed in the weird world of this stuff. You know, I just don't have the power of like mad magazine or tops mm -hmm. to do this. You could have created the hard rock cafe of garbage pail kids. Absolutely. Yeah. When the kiss coffee house came about, we knew of the exact area where that should go. And we even had property that we could have put that on over in Tukwila. So I, and every time I drive by it, it still looks like it should have been a Kiss Coffee House to me. But that was like, I don't know, 15 years ago. But do you really want to deal with Gene Simmons lawyers? No, not anymore. No. So sure, Can you imagine him not intervening if anyone outside of himself would start a kiss related business. Yeah. See, so you're everything changes. So 15 years ago. Yeah. I was obsessed and crazy about it. Would I have been a fun kiss coffee house owner. Yes. Am I glad I didn't do that? Yes. I'm, I don't need a kiss coffee house. So our thoughts are really crazy at certain times of our lives and what we can do with them. So, to the dead vampires thing, I'm so glad that all my thoughts swirled into this weird time period and that thing, the whole entire thing could happen with everybody involved. And it was so awesome. Well, it just seems like the stuff you do, like even in your home, your displays are almost like retail displays that for all the work you put into it, wouldn't it be nice if more of the public could see that work that you do? Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I go through my phases where I want to be on social media or I don't want to be on social media. And sometimes if I do do that, then I have photos of everything and it's all organized. And, you know, I'm able to present digitally. And I think we're in a time where that's all we can do right now anyways. So I've shown my digital collection and then I've just put it away for a while. 
Well, what's interesting to see is that you have definite phases in your life and in your creative life. And we've talked about this before, but you've had enough time in between projects to think, okay, do I still like doing that? Do I have an interest in that? You know, do I want to try something new? And you've given yourself a lot of downtime. It seems like collecting has filled up that creative energy. Right. Do you see yourself going into a new phase where you'll say, okay, I'm going to put, I'm going to go all in and dump all my focus and creative energy into a new creative pursuit? <clears throat> no, I don't see what it, I see a couple projects that I will work on, but I don't see any like hardcore change that I'm going to go through right now. Cause I know how to make clothes and jackets and masks and stuff. And I think I'll continue to repeat those types of things. Um, but, and help with the movies and stuff, but no, I don't have anything that nothing is pulling me right now. I've looked at electronic drums. I totally like them. We've talked about getting them. I think I'm putting that on hold right now because if I get electronic drums, then I need, I'm going to need a band to work with. Like there'll be this agitation or something that I'll need to like be working on that. And I don't think I'll be able to like get anything out of it on my own right now. So I've got ideas, but they're still, they're creative and I still like drawing. So my drawings can turn into clothes too. I like that. I like making clothes right now. You know, big thing you've done since we started the documentary is you sold off your band equipment. And when we first started, when I first met you, you still had a full drum set and it was set up and you could play it whenever you wanted to. And you had amplifiers and guitars and at what point did you decide to sell those and say, you know what, that's just not a possibility right now. I just don't want them around. You know, what motivated you to sell those? Oh, well, I was having, I think I really wanted to downsize so much that I eventually wanted to move. I wanted to save money. I wanted to, I never was going to play music again, I think, when I got rid of all that stuff. And also it was, it was very used and it had been like stored in, you know, cold places throughout the house. And it just wasn't my favorite type of gear. So if I was to do something again, I wanted to sound good and I wanted it to sound like it was coming from a much better gear. So my old punk rock sound was pretty much dying for me because it sounded like shit on my own. I didn't want to sound like shit anymore. So an electronic drum set has a th 135 settings. So I think to get something like that, you know, you can turn on a much clearer sound. Well, you know, one thing is when you've got the stuff sitting around and you're not using it, it's kind of this reminder and causes friction. So even yeah. if you know later on, you want to buy some drums again, wasn't there something freeing when you just said, you know what, I'm going to sell this just so it's not reminding me of what I'm not doing. And then to say, you know what, you know, I give myself permission that if I don't want to pursue this anymore, I don't have to. Right. And also it's kind of a power button 
for me to just shut it off. Like if I really don't want to do this and I'm that like irritated with it, then if I get rid of it and I've already gotten it out of my way and I've made it even harder to do, then I really have to stop. So you're right. Yeah. It's, it's a hard stop and a end to a process. You know, and another I thing, think well, another it. thing about what you did besides, you know, play drums, you wrote songs too. Yeah. And that, that you don't necessarily need. And you wrote a lot of lyrics. And one of my favorite parts of the documentary that eventually got cut was I had you recite a lot of your songs. Like like as voiceovers, and I don't I just I just put them in odd places, but I was so charmed by your lyrics, and they were very out there, they were very raw and explicit, but they also kind of had a sense of humor to them, and especially you know when you're reciting lyrics that are meant to be actually sung and shouted to a punk rock beat, you know, with a band, it's it's kind of funny to hear them recited as poetry. Exactly. They were totally meant to be screaming with like dirty leathermen everywhere. Like it was supposed to be like the whore hut, the eagle on its hottest night kind of rock band is playing. And that's where my fantasy band was. But I couldn't find any crazy leathermen that were doing punk rock to join a band like that. So, yeah, when you just read my lyrics like poetry it is pretty funny um but they wanted i wanted to scream them so bad because i wanted to be like the muckleteo fairies and be another extremely hardcore punk band out there i don't know hardcore to me was always the toughest and it was kind of that revenge of you know we're not weak it was a revenge to get to that level of screaming punk and be that hardcore. So that's where I was when I was writing really dirty lyrics about wild, wild sex with uniform men and all that kind of stuff and had my, you know, I needed the nerve. I needed these guys to be around me. So I'd even have the nerve to be in a band that could be that crazy. But my mind was in that zone of, Porn punk rock band. Where is do you, it? Do you remember some of the song titles? Oh God, spank me, Hanky, and I don't know. They were basically about like cop fetishes because when I first turned eighteen and got into adult bookstores, I learned about uniforms, and so one of the things was uniforms and cop fetishes and leather outfits or firemen or whatever you had your choice basically there was a whole section so and what made it even more interesting is that you wrote some of these while you were working in a bagel shop right oh my yeah i don't have all my lyrics with me about that kind of stuff but it was that was the theme. I, I wanted triple X porn gay punk bands. Now, I didn't ask you, but did you ever get the dead vampires to perform any of those songs? No, no. I knew that was mine. I figured if there was going to be ever a time where I was going to sing, I was going to surprise them with something that I had written like that. But 
I always kept them under my pillow basically because I, for a while I couldn't stop writing lyrics. I was writing them all the time and I kept everything. Well, that was one of the rare concessions I made. It's not like you were totally against me using that in the documentary. I think in the end, it was like we had so much material that just always brought it to a different direction and kind of stopped the flow. It was like like a non sequitur. They just came out of nowhere, you reciting these songs, which I thought was really great. I mean, I was endlessly entertained by hearing you recite them, but in the end, they weren't just adding up to the overall flow that we were going for. Yeah, it's extreme porn, what I was talking about. And, and in a weird way, you can't control who's ever going to see the movie and all that kind of stuff. And you can't control like what you've said in the past or whatever. So when I say shit like that, I really shouldn't even care who hears it. So that's kind of the thing about um, having this explicit life, you know, why are we shaming ourselves even when we're trying to tell a story, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think for your song lyrics, to just put them out there without context, that's hard. Because even what you just said now adds even more context for me, that these were made to be screamed, you know, at a gay leather bar and just, you know, this whole arena that you imagined it being performed in as opposed to this spoken word while you know i'm showing other images in the documentary it's such a different context mm -hmm. yeah because limp wrist is something that you can actually look at and go wow now that's what i'm talking about he wore the shortest shorts his ass is falling out if he's not just in a jock strap he's completely hairy he's walking around telling everybody he's a slut pretty much and like i mean when you see that it's like that's what i'm talking about that's what i was trying to be and before limperist happened i was that was my vision and so when they happened i'm like wow you made my dreams come true i mean limperist is what i wished for in the in my lyrics now I can look at them and somebody else did it and somebody else did it with no shame and they did it with a hot body, you know, pure sex. It's awesome. Well, one thing that's happened since we first started, you know, making the documentary five years ago, five plus, is just this hyper awareness of queer horror, you know, using horror, analyzing it and getting a lot of gay subtext in horror movies, whether or not they're overtly gay, but just the way that, you know, gay stories have been told through horror movies of, you know, someone being bullied or picked on. You know, there's a lot of ways you can read a horror movie and identify with a character, whether or not they're overtly gay, it still mirrors a gay experience. And in times when people couldn't be as overtly gay, they could get some meaning out of these um, kind of veiled gay stories within horror movies. Which sounded so scholarly that left you speechless. 
Oh, what would it be? Um, probably. <laughs> but, but, well, well, the other thing I was going to say, but but the main thing that happened was, I think the uh, documentary Scream Queen yeah. about the making of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and you actually meeting um, some of the people involved with that. And it's kind of like that was all going on. And I think when we were getting footage at horror conventions, meeting other you know, meeting people who are overtly, you know, gay people in the horror industry and embracing that, that's kind of exploded in the past five years. It, it took a long time, but even, you know, shows like Dragula in the past couple of years, that wasn't even, we wouldn't even really thought of that five years ago. And it just seems to have accelerated in these last five years since we first embarked on this ambitious documentary that we made. Yeah, I think it just takes asking everybody their story when you meet them and finding out where their beginning was. But it seems to me that they're all about the same. Like we, a whole bunch of us grew up in front of our televisions and we're finally out and about and we're finally available to meet each other, probably because of social media you know, um, that we didn't have it so no one could hear anybody. And so everybody felt super alone until they all came up with their gay versions of horror and now they have outlets to share them. Every year at Crypticon, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. So um, there's other cities that are way bigger than us. So, you know, the horror scenes are way big out there too. And... I'm seeing it is big in New York, and you're right. Meeting the Scream Queen crew is a is a good thing. I can't believe that we're we're finally meeting similar people. Well, it seems like horror fans in the gay community kept it pretty quiet for so long, and just all at once, it's like saying, "Yeah, a lot of gay people love horror films," and now that you know. The internet is making it easy to connect and, you know, how many, you know, gay horror podcasts and sites there are now. And just like, it's like the floodgates just opened and said, yeah, there's this huge, formerly kind of quiet horror uh, legion within the gay community that's saying, yeah, we've loved horror movies forever. Now it's just a lot more easy to talk about it. Yeah. And sometimes I see people that, I wouldn't assume that are gay and maybe it's because we have all been in a bubble like when you are trying to date somebody uh, you're not really talking to everybody so there's a level of nerd that I see out at Crypticon that's kind of like I wouldn't have thought you were gay because you know you weren't really interested in it anyways but that you just find out you know you just as it keeps on going and going and going and about finding out all these more gay people you're like well they're not all here for you to do. They're all here because they're gay and they're showing themselves as this is the community. So like when you open your eyes to that, there's a lot of people out there and they're all looking like a giant gay horror scene. And it's cool. It's cool. I think we're opening our eyes to it. Exactly. And I think for you, um, you know, to be so out there in so many ways. It's also showing there's just not one kind of gay 
horror fan too. It's not like you just like, you know, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Oh, that's still cool. Or you just like whatever happened to Baby Jane. You know, you can be a gay horror fan and like, you know, way out there things that, you know, most of us haven't heard of or you might like, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, or you might like more sci-fi action-oriented horror. That's the other thing that happens is once these floodgates open, you suddenly realize, you know, there's lots of variety within that. And there's not just one type of horror that all gay people like. Yeah, they like it all. There's just so many different kinds of people. So you got to let everybody be all mixed but, up. And but we up. want these touch points, too. That's why I think Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, that's a starting point that we can all kind of come together and talk about. Mm -hmm. or, or if you saw it when it first came out, or if you saw it thinking, am I the only one that thinks this one's, this is really gay? You know, it's like, it's yeah. kind of like for decades, people had to kind of ponder that in silence. Now, suddenly they're given permission to say, no, you weren't the only one. We all thought that, you know, it's like this light bulb goes off. And I think it's, it's like the people that kind of give us those moments we can kind of, have that, you know, common recognition with each other. And that's, I think, what has brought a lot of people together. Just that one documentary, Scream Queen, has caused so much discussion, brought a lot of people together, you know, at conventions. So we need stuff like that, too. Those initial things that bring people together to talk about it. We do. We needed to know who cared enough to assemble something like this and how long did you care about this topic you know it goes really far back it takes somebody a very long time to make something because first of all to think like if roman makes this movie he also grew up throughout the entire time watching this movie and knowing about this movie forever so the entire experience has been in him to even be able to create something like that it took his whole life to be able to make the movie in a way because you had to see it and you saw it at the right time and look what you did with that. Yeah. And I think for someone like, um, who's the main star that it's about who was in the movie? Mark Patton. Mark Patton. On the tip of my tongue. Mark Patton. It's interesting because someone like that has had enough time and kind of distance since that first came out to bring an interesting perspective. And what makes that documentary unique is not, you know, just the gay subtext in that movie, but the fact that Mark was also gay and how this became a very personal for th thing and how it affected his career. But just to see someone to have all that time to reflect on it and to see how times have changed you know, in the, what, 35 years since uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 came out. 35 years. I saw that in the theater when it came out in 1985. Oh, my God. We're in, a, like, a Star Trek time compared to what that was. You know, it was magazine articles and newspaper clippings back then. And if you think about all the stuff that Mark went through and, you know the abuse of the homophobia and all that kind of crap. 
And then we got social media now, you know, these are very different time periods and it can, there's too much to say about what you can say about that topic. Are you going to attack that movie these days? Or are you going to praise that movie these days? But for the most part, we're all on the side of praising this movie. And that's the good thing about this documentary is that it has a happy ending that we're all proud of this movie and we do have the story out and we're able to celebrate it. Mm -hmm. Well, what I like about the documentary of you is with an explosion of gay cinema and documentaries covering so much more, I mean, things wide open, people who are normally underrepresented, that even within you know, this, this explosion of gay media, that it's still nice to see someone like you who isn't always represented either, meaning a gay punk rocker or this guy that loves to collect horror memorabilia who just happens to be gay. That's another level to this of showing, you know, representation. And I just think it's really cool that you're a representation that I don't see that often in a documentary. Right. I would agree. Uh, I'm, I don't know. I give myself a pat on the back. I'm proud to be myself and I'm proud to do, um, be a good person walking around in this world. And I'm proud that I've been a part of so many creative things and I've seen so many creative people and I encourage people to be creative and I'll always be a fan of up and coming people just you know, as long as we keep showing ourselves that we're good, then you will be noticed. Yeah, and I think with you, and I was struck by, you know, what's that saying? Do you. You do you, Spanky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In that, you know, if you want to make jackets with rhinestones on it, you do that. Yeah. Or if you want to collect garbage pail kids cards, you do that. You're not doing it to impress anyone or doing it because your best friend is doing it. You're strictly doing all these things because they come from you and you're not being forced to do them by anyone else. Right. I tend to stay out of people's traps for sure. I'd much rather spend time alone if I'm going to feel trapped by anybody. So, um, I like working with you because you you always have a new creative project ready to go and your presentation is amazing. It's, it is really hard to say no to you. And as long as you're around people who always have something fun to do, then it's easy to go along with it. And, you know. I know. I'll probably be 80 years old and calling you up saying, Spanky. Let's, Let's do make something. a movie. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You can still get up in your walker. Come on. You got to do stunts. Let's go. <laughs> See. But isn't it fun to do something where you're still taking a risk? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I, I think I tried to censor my art a little bit recently and I thought I would try to make it less angry. And I'm like, 
I don't know if I can. I'll just still just keep on being me. And if it comes out angry, it's totally fine. You know, even though it's a drawing or you're making more shirts or whatever, something about my stuff is very loud and I, I feel like it's edgy. My clothes and everything, every statement I write on something, it's always going to be edgy. So it's a little bit of like walking in dangerous territory all the time. See, one thing you and I have in common, and here I'm going to speak for you. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think this is one, one good thing we have in common that bonds us is to a certain extent, we're both sort of fame whores. And even though we logically know it's healthy to not idolize famous people, and for the most part, we play it cool, you know. We're not groveling fans, except for you when you're around Guar. But other <laughs> than that, we, we, we play it cool. But we still love that we love our celebrities. I mean, you loved... Wendy O. Williams, and even yeah. after her passing, you continue to love her. And, you know, I I idolize, you know, Grace Jones since high school. And, you know, we would both kill to meet Debbie Harry. And I'm sure, you know, actors and creators, I, I still like that. I mean, wouldn't you hate to totally give that up to not be excited about a creative person that you idolize? Yeah, I can't give it up. So therefore, I will change gears and I will follow a new person once I realize there's more people out there than whoever you were just done idolizing. And so open your eyes to the next creative person and respect them for a while. And that's why this continues to change. And there's always somebody else that I will pay attention to. You know, somebody else's time is up if they're not as exciting anymore they show some shitty side or whatever it's kind of like i'm done with this for now and i'm gonna go pay attention to somebody who's exciting and happy or whatever they are whatever gets you at the time maybe they're angry and you love them for that but it's a mix and, may and maybe it's good just to admire them from afar like you don't have to meet them like if i met yeah. grace jones what the hell would i say to her right but it's still nice to be excited to, you know, find an old magazine with her on the cover. Or if you really love someone, to buy a book of photos of them or their memoir or their autobiography or just to collect their old albums. You know, it's just, it's just part of the spice of life to have these people who really affected you creatively. Yeah. There's still some of them. And I... We'll see when their stuff pops up. It's still, it's still good to see. Um, Except when you like that, you go on a buying binge on Amazon and eBay and yeah. buy everything they've ever produced. Yeah. Well, I just tried to do that with Angeline. And I think the most of the people that have seen pictures of Angeline do not know what she sounds like musically. And if they do, they only know a few songs. And if you know just a few songs, well, you have not heard there are so many songs by her and so i think to take in angeline you better hear like at least 20 some songs from her and realize she's freaking cool i love that stuff but you it's know? so nice that you can like angeline who has sort of this 80s 
girl group retro retro 60s girl group sound by way of 80s pop you know I mean, she... like the cars and punk and like raw go-go's and like totally so obviously i'm gonna be a slut no matter what i love that but you can like something a little kitschy and campy like angeline yet still love a hardcore punk band at the same time yes whereas some people couldn't reconcile both of those things and that's what's so cool it's expected oh yeah he's gonna like angeline of course she's kitschy and campy well you know don't just paint spanky in that one stroke he's gonna like some some new wave and some goth and some thrash metal or you know some mm -hmm. gg allen or whatever yeah and that's what makes it kind yeah. of you interesting is you're also not just going to be dictated like you know you can only like dance divas right people that pigeonhole themselves like that um find a way out i don't know what to tell you there's not only one genre to stick with and for those who really want to know Spanky, he's the kind of friend that will make you an Angeline mixtape and burn it on a CD for you so you can listen to it in your car. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Didn't you also I'll make, make sure me a... Everything cool. I'm If we're hanging around, I will make sure to announce everything cool I can within our amount of time of hanging out. And what was the other one? You had a mixed, another mixtape on CD that started out with, um, was it the, the Christmas tree scene from Female Trouble, like the dialogue? I don't think I have that. Um, I have as many John Waters songs as I can get, though, but there's a lot. And Debbie Harry did do Polyester theme song with Tab Hunter. And that's a hard song to get. Oh, my God. Well, you did record um, on that uh, Female Trouble theme song sung by Divine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a hard song to get, too. Really and you put some cool. Edith Masti on that. Was it Big Girls Don't Cry? Yeah, she at least she has a record for that. Yep. Oh, my God. See, at least, you know, like John Waters is such a good meeting point for so many people. Mm-hmm. Because he's kind of, people say he's kind of campy, but he's really more punk rock, more DIY. He's got, on the surface, like this campy kind of feel, but deep down, he's kind of punk rock. Yes, part of the original punk scene, where punks were just bratty, thuggy, shit, shit stirs, and, you know, they're just brats. Well, that was his scene. I mean, deep down, don't we all want to be part of Divine's high school squad in Female Trouble? Of course. When you're in a bratty mood, of course you do. Cutting class, hanging out in the hall, smoking, and saying how much you hate your teachers and <laughs> everything, and how yeah. you're going to take your Christmas presents and take them back and get the money. <laughs> <laughs> it was so everybody at school, too. So it wasn't, it was actually happening. Oh, my God. Acting like that.
If you could go back to high school knowing what you know now, would you? <laughs> no, I hate school. I absolutely hated high school. The it, Knowing what I know now, oh my God. It would just be like work, you know? I think I still run into the same kind of dumb people, but not at work. And I got it all under control at work. So it's just when I have to go into the real world and... You know, that's like school, being around school places. How are you going to react? <laughs> well, if, it, if you were Drew Barrymore, what was that movie where she had to go, she was an adult and had to go back to high school undercover? Never <laughs> been kissed. Oh, my God. See, I don't know. I just remember just one of the guys where you have to go back to school and be something you don't want to be. <laughs> like 21 Jump Street? Yeah. Okay. You go undercover as a narcotics officer? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, we'll wrap up here in a minute. Obviously, we need to have you uh, on more podcasts because we have much more to talk about. But I think this is about enough for today. And Okay. Besides, I'm kind of getting hungry, and I want to eat some sugar-free chocolate. Oh, good. Well, it was good to be with you again. Well, tell me, before we kind of sign off here, for people who are undoubtedly going to see the documentary, Spanky Was a Punk Rocker, just give a, a brief little preview of, you know, what you think they'll enjoy about it. I think they will enjoy the dead vampires after they see the documentary, but they should enjoy me and you. They should just enjoy us as cool people that have come together to make this little movie that um, is about somebody who doesn't get enough recognition. And there's plenty of stuff out there that represents the gay community, but not enough stuff out there that represents toy collecting and unique music and, and a little horror punk band called dead vampires. And what's this crazy thing we're going to do next Saturday? We're going to do a script rating with Kevin M Glover, who is a vampire, also a gay vampire, which is a thing that I keep in my mind at all times that I love gay vampires. So we're going to make a fun day out of hanging out with Kevin and figuring out what we're going to do next. So it was just inevitable that, you know, we, we drew a line in the sand with this documentary and now gay vampires are popping into our lives. Yeah, people, people we've admired from afar for years. You know, Kevin, he wrote and starred in Love Bites, you know, the, the world's first gay which, romance vampire story. Which I just bought that and Venus Flytrap on DVD yesterday, and I will be getting them as soon as possible and watching them right away. Oh, my God. And, and he'll be Commenting. sitting... At your dining table, drinking your coffee in uh, six days. Excellent. I hope I get them before that because I want to hear the commentary. I mean, I love he gives good commentary. Oh my god, that is one of the best DVD commentaries I've ever heard on on the Love Bites DVD. 
Amazing, which he does with David Dakota, who, if you're listening, David Dakota, you will be on my podcast soon, someday. Yeah, we're waiting. <laughs> we're putting it out there. Well, thank you, Spanky, a.k.a. Spankula the Count, a.k.a. Count Spankula. So say one last little goodbye to the audience, and then I'm going to click you off. Oh, goodbye, you gay monsters. Goodbye.